He is risen. He is risen indeed. Hallelujah. What are you praying about? A friend of mine once suggested that if you really want to get to the heart of the matter in a conversation, if you want to cut through all the, the small talk with a friend or brother and sister in Christ, that that's the question to ask. What are you praying about? Because the things that we're praying about are the things that are weighing heaviest on our hearts and on our shoulders. The stuff that we bring before the throne of the Father and perhaps before nobody else. To ask somebody and to think about what I'm praying about is to cut right to the chase and to find out what matters to me most. What's at the heart of the matter? I mention this because in today's gospel, we are privy and privileged to hear the prayers of our Lord Jesus. This is commonly called the high priestly prayer, as here our Lord intercedes before the throne of the Father above. And for whom does he intercede? For his disciples, for you and for me. It's an opportunity for us to to eavesdrop on our Lord, so to speak. And in so doing, to find out what is it that's on his heart? What is it that is most important to him to lift up to the Father? Why does Jesus pray? And the reason that he prays is as he says, as you have sent me, Father, so I have sent them into the world. What's heaviest on Jesus' heart in this moment is the mission of the Father. And not merely in the sense that Jesus himself is about to carry out and accomplish this mission through his death and his resurrection. In this moment, he's thinking about even beyond that, beyond the grave, when he comes out after the third day and sends out his followers, sends them out to continue that mission, that great sending of the Father into the world. Jesus knows that it's going to be hard. That phrase, into the world, comes up again and again and again. And this is the world that the Father loves. For God so loved the world that he sent his only son. The Father loves this world, but Jesus also knows that that world does not respond in kind or with kindness. In his prayer, he recognizes, he acknowledges, Father, this is the world that hates you and it's going to hate them because they're not of the world. And so Jesus, like a loving parent, sending out their child into the world, He's praying for his disciples, praying for you and me as we go out into the world as part of this great sending. His heart is heavy with it because he knows it's going to be hard. There's going to be hardships and opposition. There may even be persecution. And in the face of that all, he lifts us up to the Father. But interestingly, interestingly, in those prayers, he's praying not just about those hardships, but he's praying about the temptations that are going to come along with those hardships. The grave temptations that were there for those first disciples and are still there for you and me today. Temptation to be surprised and estranged by those hardships. Tem- temptations for us to, to grow weak and weary. Temptations for us to, to lose our will, to fly and flee from the world. Temptation to become separate and scattered in the body of Christ. Let's start with that one. The temptation to separation. 
See, Jesus knows full well, and he says that when they strike the shepherd, that is when they strike him, the sheep will scatter. That after his death, there's going to be all manner of opposition and hardship for his followers. And one of their natural reactions, one of those temptations that they're going to encounter is that they're going to start pointing fingers at one another. All the sheep will start pointing hooves at each other, right? They're going to play the blame game. They're going to start factions. They're going to separate from each other. This is a natural reaction and temptation in the face of difficulty and struggle and suffering is to say, whose fault is it? Who can we point a finger at? And so Jesus sees that his followers, his sheep, may well be tempted to separate and to scatter from one another. Now, fortunately, this has proved not to be the case, and we are perfectly united still to this day. (laughs) Somebody sent me an article uh, just today. In fact, I had to incorporate this last-minute inclusion in the sermon from uh, the website, the Babylon Bee. Some of you know the Babylon Bee. It's kind of a Christian satire website, and the headline reads this. Every Lutheran splits into own individual synod. (laughs) After many heated debates over matters of theology, doctrine, and church carpet color, Lutherans have all finally agreed to split and form his or her own individual synod. When you think about it, this was inevitable, said Randy Huner, president of the newly formed Get the Drums Off the Chancel Synod. It's about time this happened, said Sandy Mueller, founder of the new Stop Cutting the Donuts into Quarters During the Fellowship Hour Synod. <laughs> no, seriously, don't do it. I'm just kidding. <laughs> she goes on to say, this is what Luther would have wanted. Early reports indicate that over 77 million synods have now been formed across the world around the finer points of liturgical style, music, and whether or not to change the ugly mural in the narthex that Ethel Barnes painted in 1952 and no one really likes. (laughs) It's funny, of course, because it cuts to the heart. This one is a little bit too close to home, right? Over and over and over again, the body of Christ has been rent asunder. And so what does Jesus pray for? Seeing that, envisioning, anticipating where that's going to go, he prays for oneness. He prays, Father, I pray that they might be one as you and I are one. And that appendage to that prayer is important. See, Jesus isn't just praying for some you know, uh, uh, whitewashing kind of unity, of just pretending. He is not giving us a, a picture of just a photo op kind of unity, like, yay, we're all together, when in fact we're not. What he's praying for is a deep, profound unity, that our unity, our oneness with one, with one another, would reflect the oneness of the triune God, of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Are we ever going to reach that in this age? No, of course not. Does that mean that it is any less the desire of our Lord? Absolutely not. His deep desire and longing is that we would have that sort of unity. But what do we do? You know, what are we going to do? We're just one church just part of one denomination, just part of one country of the worldwide church of God. What can we do when we look out and we see so much division and disunity and separation within the body of Christ? You know what we can do? We can start right here and seek oneness within our own hearts, within this body of believers in which God has placed us. 
Paul would write to another singular church in a singular place, the church of Ephesus. He says, be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. That this is something to be eager for, to pray for that kind of oneness and unity, that single-mindedness together as the body of Christ. And that doesn't mean that we don't disagree, right? Sometimes there's this idea that, okay, then that oneness means that we're all in lockstep and you better get along to go along, okay? We're all together in this. It's not that we don't disagree. I love the comment by a church historian named Ephraim Radner. He says, it's not that the church doesn't disagree, but it's how we disagree that distinguishes us from the world. It's not that we don't disagree, but how we disagree, which is to say we do it in charity and humility in love, when we've got beefs with one another, with the pastor, we talk about it with each other, we wrestle through with it. We don't take that easy temptation to just take my ball and go home or start another synod. We don't flee. We fight for the oneness of the body of Christ. It matters. It's on the heart of our Savior that we not flee. And that brings us to the second thing that Jesus prays for. He prays that we not flee from one another within the church. But he also prays, he sees this second temptation, that we might want to flee from the world. To go into flight from this very world into which he is sending us. When the going gets tough, we get out of Dodge. (laughs) We might call this the Jonah temptation, right? You want me to go where now, God? How about I go in the opposite direction, right? And God's like, yes, I have a fish for you. (laughs) This too, I think, is an understandable temptation. And I'll just be honest. This is one that, especially for me, as a father, as a parent, that I struggle with, that I wrestle with. I think for any of us, we want to be able to protect ourselves and especially to, to protect our kids And it is meet and right for us so to do. God doesn't call for us to be foolish in this. He doesn't say, yeah, just take them and throw them out there. Take your little ones and drop them in the sea and see if they can swim. That's not the point. His point, rather, and his deep desire is that in the face of the world, when we see all those difficulties and those trials that we would not shrink back and that we would not hold up. You remember how the disciples were on the day of our Lord's resurrection, behind locked doors. And that continually is a temptation for us, particularly in our day, I think, when we see that the world is in many ways contrary to our Christian faith, that it runs against our confession. I think there's a temptation for us to say, okay, let's circle the wagons, right? It's nice and safe in here. We've got good coffee and donuts. Let's just stay here. But Jesus' prayer is not that we would learn how to stay. His prayer is that we would have boldness out into the world under his protection and preservation. He says, Father, I'm not asking you to take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. Jesus is no sentimentalist. He knows very well what awaits his disciples when they go out into the world. He's not thinking, hey guys, it's really not as bad as all that. In fact, it's much worse than you and I even realize. There is a spiritual warfare continually afoot. And yet in spite of that, he says, still, you go out into the world. You have this courage and this confidence, a boldness that can only come 
through the gift of the Holy Spirit. It's that courage that now we have. I think of Peter. Peter is a great case in point where he is somebody that we think of as having great boldness. And in fact, when he would go out and preach, we see this in the book of Acts, the opponents of the church, they recognize the boldness of Peter. But you know that boldness was born out of cowardice. Through his own craven denial of the Lord. And yet Christ was able to strengthen and equip him then to be a bold and faithful witness. For any of us, we know that in our heart of hearts, we're coward, cowardly and cravenly. We want to flee from the world. But Christ has given to you the gift of his Holy Spirit and prays for you and me that we would have that boldness, that we might be like Peter, being able to speak boldly the word of Christ and even, as we see, even in the face of suffering, beating, opposition, to rejoice, to rejoice. That brings me to one last piece of Jesus' prayer that I want to highlight for us. He envisions those temptations to to separation and to flight, and he prays for our, our oneness. He prays for our boldness. But one more temptation that he sees is that we might be scandalized and estranged by the opposition that we might encounter. Peter says in our epistle reading that we heard, he says, Beloved, Don't be surprised by the fiery trial that you're enduring. Don't be surprised. The word might otherwise be translated as estranged. In other words, like don't be uh, uh, separated from God now by these uh, sufferings and these hardships that you're enduring. Don't think that God's not with you because it's happening to you. And once again, I think this is a temptation because in the face of struggle, we think, well, wait a second, I must not be on God's side. Something has gone wrong. Like if I was really following the Lord, then everything would be peachy keen. It'd be nothing but green lights for me all the way ahead. Nothing could be further from the truth. In fact, Jesus tells us it's going to be just the opposite in many cases. That's going to be red light after red light, difficulty and struggle and temptation. He says, don't be surprised by it. And yet it's precisely this kind of surprise and estrangement that I see throughout our culture right now. So many Christians who are just wringing their hands or getting really angry about the fact that now, as the church, we're not in control. We're not in charge. It's understandable that we would be a little bit surprised by that because for so long as Christians in the West, particularly in this country, we've kind of been able to call the shots. We've expected things to go our way. We've had stuff like like prayer in schools and Ten Commandments in the Supreme Court. We expected that. We assumed that that would be the case. And now, when those things are going away, in fact, when the tide is starting to go just the opposite, for many believers, they're getting not just surprised, but estranged from God by it, angry and resentful. Scripture tells you and me, don't be surprised. Don't be surprised. This is what we should expect, because you and I are not of the world. And more importantly, don't be estranged from God through all of it. That is maybe the most grave temptation of all, that we would lose faith and lose hope and that we would lose joy. And that's why what Jesus prays for, finally, is that his joy would be fulfilled in you and me. Peter says the same. When you encounter suffering and trial, rejoice! Because in those times of trial, in that hardship, you are being drawn closer to Christ. Rejoice. 
Jesus' deepest joy and desire is that you would share in his joy, that you and I would have it filled up, not in spite of our circumstances, but precisely in the midst of it. That when we encounter difficulty and struggle and trial for the sake of our faith, that we would rejoice in it. How could that possibly be? Only supernaturally and through the gift of his Holy Spirit. That's the only way that it can happen. But it's precisely what Jesus desires for us. Ah, This is such a temptation in our day when we see the difficulties, when we encounter in ourselves finally to think, okay, there's, there's no hope. And maybe we keep our faith, but we just kind of shuffle our feet along and we keep our faces down and we just go this way. There's a famous prayer from Teresa of Avila. She said this, From silly devotions and sour-faced saints, good Lord, deliver us. From silly devotions and sour-faced saints, good Lord, deliver us. There's many things that we can and we will lose for the sake of our faith in this world. The one thing we must not lose is joy. Joy. Because Christ has the victory. A victory that is given to you and me. And in the midst of all the struggle, in the midst of all the failures, in the midst of all of the difficulties, still he is with you and he is for you. His promise is not that things are going to go easy for us as his followers. Quite the opposite. In many respects, we will endure grave difficulties. But that's why Jesus bowed his knee before the Father. And not only that, that's why he lives. He lives to intercede for you and me still today. Still today, Jesus prays for us. And as St. Peter said, after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Take heart. He is with you, and he is for you. Amen. And may the peace of God that surpasses all understanding keep your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Amen.